The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein. It's been an incredible 2023 on this show. We hit our 100th episode this year. We've had an Indy 500 winner on the program 10 days before he won the Indy 500. We've had singers, car designers, CEOs, marketers. John Oates of Holland Oates was on the program talking about his love of cars. We welcome back Tony Fidel, co-creator of the iPod, iPhone, and Nest. We had film producer and car guy Rick French in the midst of his movie production in Malta. NASCAR's Kyle Busch talked about retirement. Former F1 boss Otmar Zafnauer talked about his forced retirement at Alpine. We introduced the world to NASCAR up-and-comer Haley Deegan, and then the world talked about her. We talked hairstyling and tequila with John Paul DeJoria, founder of Paul Mitchell and Patron. What a year, what a collection of cars and culture. If anything, our introduction to more than 130 guests Actors, CEOs, comedians, movie producers, racers has highlighted what we thought to be true. The car world is filled with fascinating people from all walks of life. And they all have one thing in common. They care about the automobile. They're passionate about the automobile. Throughout this journey, the stories have been rich and the personalities have been dynamic. For the next three weeks, we'll highlight several key interviews from this past year, pulling together clips from some of the best. In this episode, you'll hear from Kyle Busch and Joseph Newgarden. Kyle is a NASCAR legend. He's also honest with us about his future in the sport and about the path forward. And Joseph, he's an IndyCar star, and he talked to us about his dream of winning the Indy 500, and then he did. It's a microcosm of the stories told on Cars and Culture each week. We hope you enjoy them as much as we enjoyed reliving them. And now my conversation with NASCAR driver Kyle Busch from July 20th. I started by asking Kyle about the special program he's working on with his father, that conversation transitioned to a talk about his legacy, retirement, and his son. I want to talk about the special car that you've done um, with your father as well. And uh, it, was a, it is a 1956 Chevrolet pickup truck. And uh, he bought it for you when you were eight, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, somewhere in there, eight to 11. I don't remember exactly, but yes. Um, so he asked, he there was a guy who owed him money. He was a Mac tool guy at the time. So he ran routes and sold tools. There was a guy who owed him money. The guy couldn't afford to pay his bill. So he asked him, he goes, okay, do you have anything you want to trade me? Like I'll take it in on trade. And so um, my dad gave me a truck magazine, like a classic trucks magazine and had old Chevys, old Dodges, old Fords, um, all this cool stuff. And he was like, Hey, look through this magazine, flip through it, mark some of your favorite trucks that you like. And so I did, I looked through it and, you know, he was like, okay, this is cool. This is cool. This is good. This is good. And he goes, well, which one's your favorite? And I pointed to the one flipped to the page. And, um, and so he was like, that's cool. Yeah, man, that would be, that would be really neat. Whatever he said. Well, it wasn't a week later and this truck showed up. It was the exact truck I picked out in the magazine. Like it was a 55, 56 Chevy pickup truck and it showed up and I was like, okay, cool. Well, not the exact same as the, the picture, right? So it wasn't the $100,000 truck that was all tricked out. This was one that was taken in on trade for $4,000 or whatever that it was. And it was a bucket of hunk of nuts and bolts and metal and rusted parts and pieces. Like it was not cool at all. But at the time I was like, oh yeah, that's cool, man. You just have these dreams and these visions of like what it can be. And so he was like, this is our project truck. This is what we're going to do. We're going to build this one day. And I was like, okay, cool. So every winter or every off weekend that we had that we weren't busy doing something, we would bring the truck out. We would work on it for eight hours, nine hours, whatever it was on a day. And then, you know, we'd put it back in the, uh, in the barn and, and we would just keep working on it. And when I got to big time racing, you know, it kind of got put to the back burner and nothing happened with it. My, my dad moved it from Vegas out to North Carolina where we live now. And he went ahead and restarted the project years later, probably 20 years later. And um, there's another story that when I moved to North Carolina, I didn't have anything to drive at the time. So I was still driving 
our old family Suburban that took us to all of our races on the West Coast. It was a 1989 GMC Suburban. And I'm driving this thing all around town, whatever. And there was um, a cross intersection. Uh, this lady stopped and to turn on this road, there was no light or anything, but I was looking off, not paying attention. And I, I hit her, I, I ran in the back of her. And so I destroyed the family Suburban. And so my dad was like, well, I guess this is the engine that we're going to use for the 56 Chevy pickup. So I was like, okay, well, cool. Some, something good from something bad. Right. And so um, he's working on the truck. He built the engine. He's doing all this stuff and getting it all ready. And then he got tired of it. Didn't want to finish. So I sent it off to another uh, company that would, that would do the work and finish it. So we spent the money to finish it. And I've got it now to today. And I love it. It's one of my favorite vehicles. It's an awesome truck. It's super fun to drive. I've taken Samantha and Brexton to, to dinner in it. We go to the ice cream place with it. The eyeballs that you get with it when you're driving it down the road is, is pretty cool. You know, everybody checking it out, wanting to see under the hood. What do you got in this thing? You know, so um, it's a really, really neat thing. And it was cool that my dad and I were able to start it. Unfortunately, with my life and everything else, we weren't able to finish it, but it, it did get finished. But you finished it now. Yeah. How often do yeah. you drive it? I bet you I drive it probably maybe a hundred miles a year. Really not a whole lot. Okay. Um, it does sit at home. It's at my house. I've got a five car garage. So it's in one of the stalls where, like I said, if we want to take it out to ice cream or whatever, we all just hop in as a family and we go. How much does it mean to have your son racing now? I mean, this has got to be just, I mean, talk about next, next gen stuff. Michael Jordan also said, I want to be the bridge to the next generation. You're providing a bridge here, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I feel like with KBM, Kyle Busch Motorsports, our truck series team, I've got three teams there and we're providing a bridge to a lot of young racers that have now made it to the cup series and are racing on Sundays. 14 of them, I think, uh, have come from KBM and, and have raced on Sundays, which is cool. Including uh, William Byron, who's now ahead of you in the standings. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. William Byron's one. Eric Jones is one. Bubba Wallace is one. Um, uh, there's, there's a couple others. Uh, Christopher Bell is another one. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of great kids, but, um, you talk about Brexton and, and him and, and bringing on the next generation of a Bush, uh, to hopefully come up to the, the cup series. And, and he's only eight. He started when he was five. It wasn't a great start, but he definitely learned a lot and has come a long ways and has listened to me really well on driver coaching and telling him what to do and things like that. And when he does what I tell him what to do, we win. Um, <laughs> we don't win all the races, but we win a lot of the races, which is, which is fun anyways. And so we've had, um, a, a lot of great times going to all these different short tracks across the country and, and running hard and doing well. And, and he's been fast and it's been a lot of fun. One, uh, the really nice part here is that oftentimes you'll be at the same location, uh, for a race weekend, right? He'll be racing. You'll be racing. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, I try to plan obviously his schedule around mine. I can't change mine, but I can change his. Um, and so like when we went out to, um, Fontana earlier this year, uh, he ran a quarter midget race. Um, you know, when we go to Phoenix, there's a racetrack that's just North of the speedway that they run junior sprints and he goes and runs there. Um, there's a couple racetracks that we go to that don't really have something that we do that's close by. So he might stay home on those weekends or there's other weekends where he's racing for points in a particular division at a particular track and he's actually leading those points. So he'll stay home on those weekends and I'll go somewhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really cool to have them still travel with me and be around with me a lot. Cause I don't want to miss my kids every weekend, 38 weekends out of the year, you know? So I bet you they miss maybe coming to five or six of my races. So we still get a lot of time together. Is it tough to be Kyle Bush's son? <laughs> um, yes, I bet it is. I bet you he doesn't, uh, he has to earn things. I feel like a lot harder than some others. Um, there was a race a couple of weeks ago at a track where he's racing the kid for points and that kid spun out another kid and the other kid who spun had to go to the back. But normally when you're involved in the caution, if you're the spinner and the spinny, they both go to the rear. Well, since Brexton is racing that kid that spun out the other kid for points, they let that kid stay in second place behind Brexton. And that kid ended up finishing second. And I'm like, well, that's not fair. He was supposed to go to the back. So like that would have been a bigger points buffer for Brexton to have in case something happens to us, you know, but 
it's just stuff like that, that I feel like we're sometimes not treated exactly fairly, but that's little stuff. I mean, I, you got to let that roll off your back. It's kids racing. It's at the end of the day, what's, what's that really going to tell you? Um, you know, if, if he wins a track championship at a go-kart level or not, I just, I like it because I, you add it to the resume. That's, that's always what I kind of looked at when I was 14 years old and I was a kid racing, trying to make it, I had a whole resume built out of all my races, everything that I did, all my finishes, all that stuff. And even when I was younger, when I made it to NASCAR, I felt the same way still. I'm like, I got to build my resume. I haven't made it yet. <clears throat> you never know how long you're going to be here. So you got to make sure that you're getting all you can get. You've also taught him that winning is important, but it's not everything. And ironically, you've taught him to be a gracious loser. <laughs> yeah. With Brexton being a gracious loser a little bit. Um, he's not, a. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm still trying. He's not a gracious <laughs> loser. None of us are, but um, he's doing a way better job at it than I did at his age. That's for sure. So he's, um, you know, <clears throat> he's got a lot of buddies at the racetrack. I really didn't grow up with a lot of buddies at the racetrack. So he, um, he has that relationship with those kids and he also goes over to them and congratulates them on a good race or a good day or whatever. So it's fun. Let's talk a little bit about NASCAR in general and, uh, and where it is now and unbelievable, right? You'll be next year will be 20 years that you've been racing, which I, I find just impossible to, to kind of fathom. But boy, has NASCAR changed in the last 20 years. It's changed a lot in the last two years, hasn't it, Kyle? Yeah, yeah no, no kidding. It's, I feel like, you know, people ask you, they're like, okay, think back, how much has it changed? And I'm like, man, there's been so much change. When What years were the bigger changes? You know, every year has always changed. It's, it's still the same thing. It's still the same circus, essentially. Um, but it's different venues, it's different cars, it's different safety, it's different this and that. So, um, it's been fun though. I mean, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, I've made a, a great living here. It's obviously been a lot of fun. I've, I've great, uh, gained a lot of great friendships from it too. So great relationships as well. And so, um, you know, it's, it's been good. Um, Did you I, imagine? I've enjoyed it. It's, you know, I've had great success. So I, do I want more? Yeah. I, there's a lot of things I've missed out on that I wish I've had more of, um, but I've accomplished a lot too. Could you imagine having a NASCAR street circuit in downtown Chicago? <laughs> no, definitely not. That was a new one to me. And uh, uh, I thought it was good. I thought it was fun. You know, it was something new, something different, something we haven't done before. I was happy to come out of there with a strong finish in the top five. Um, I didn't run as good as I wanted to run there though. Like I felt like I was just getting beat um, you know, lap time wise by some of the other competitors. So there's definitely some room for me to get better. But there's also room for NASCAR to grow. And you've talked about how you believe that international expansion is, is likely. I had the chance to spend time with the NASCAR team, Mr. Hendricks team at Le Mans and okay. garage 56, uh, recently. And you, you see what was interesting there is all of the excitement from the Europeans who were in attendance every time that that car went down the track and how different it sounded than the Ferraris and the Porsches and everything else. You really believe, right? It, there's international expansion in NASCAR's future. Yeah, no, I, I do. I believe it. I think that garage 56 program was pretty cool. It was, um, it kind of shined a new light in Le Mans and a lot of people had a lot of interest around the NASCAR car. So I think, I think anywhere you go, you'll see a lot of interest around it like that. You know, if you go to, I'm just making it up Silverstone an F1 track, you know, wherever the hell it is in Europe, um, you'll have a lot of big interest, you know, will it happen year over year over year? Maybe not, but at least you go over there and you run a race. It's, it's going to, it's going to pack the house for the first time. <clears throat> Let's talk about maybe what you'd want to do. Does the Indy 500 appeal to you? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it definitely does. I've, I've tried for years to try to find a ride and get over there and go do it. But every time that I've talked to guys and different team owners and such, uh, it would be a third entry or a fourth entry or something like that, where it would not be a primary ride. So it would, it would be their lesser people, um, or they'd have to go out and hire people that to just bring on for one race. So like how good are those people really going to be? Like, it just wouldn't be a full blown winning effort per se. Um, and that's kind of always why it hasn't necessarily come to fruition is I haven't been able to find, that top ride opportunity to be able to jump in something to go win. Um, but you know, you never know what'll happen down the road. I I'm only getting older, so that's not going well for me, but, uh, I I'd, I'd love to go. We talked to Jimmy Johnson on this program, right? When he started uh, racing Indy cars 
And uh, it's, he admitted it's a huge difference. Have you talked to him about it at all? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about it. He, he, he basically said, um, you know, what we race every weekend are boats and that's, that's a real car. You know what I mean? Like it's a purpose built race car. So he goes, it'll do things. It'll do whatever you want it to do. It's all about how hard you push it to that limit. Yeah. Right. The amount of training and physical endurance, uh, right. the lack of power steering in an Indy car also shocked him as, yeah, as, he, right. as he shared with us. How about these? Uh, let me, let me run through a, a, a couple of other, um, uh, series or, or, or vehicles. And you tell me whether you'd want to race them or, and why, how about sprint cars? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I've kind of dabbled my feet a little bit in the micro sprints, which is a smaller sprint car per se. Uh, Brexton runs junior sprints, which is a step smaller than that. So I've never really done that before. So I really didn't know what I was doing when I got into the micro stuff and I was a bit rough around the edges, if you will, but I've gotten a lot smoother, a lot better with it. So yeah, I think a sprint car would be the same as that. So I'm, I could do it. Swamp buggies. <laughs> That's a new one. I haven't heard that one. Um, yeah, sure. Why not? I've, I've seen those before. It's, it's pretty intense. You have to have a navigator to tell you which way to turn and they're giving you the hand signals, you know, of which way to go. So that could be, uh, that could be crazy. How about off-road racing? I've done a little bit of that. I've done a pro two before, which is the rear wheel drive trucks. I ran at a close course circus circuit in, uh, Chicago and that was pretty fun. I enjoyed that. That was really neat. Um, but like, Baja thousand, like going and running the desert race. I think that would be really cool too. I would, I would enjoy that. We just mentioned it formula one. Yeah. Same as Indy. I, I, I would love to go do it. Yeah. I mean, I think the licensing part of that is really tough. I don't know. It's not going to be feasible because you have to go through two years of gaining your FIA license and that's just impossible. And, and by the time that happens, if I did it today, I'd be 40. So, you know, what 40 year olds out there running an F1 competing with the big dogs, I would go test one. I think it would be fun to just give it a ride. Competing against the 18 year olds now <laughs> more than anything else. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one more snowmobiles. A snowmobile. Um, I'd probably skip on that one. That, that reminds me of supercross. I, I don't think I could do supercross. So I'd probably skip that one. In another life, what would you be if you weren't doing what you're doing, Kyle? Um, you know, I, I don't know, I guess if I was still interested in racing and cars and all that, like I am today, maybe I'd be a crew chief or an engineer or something like that. But, uh, otherwise I would say, uh, baseball, I always loved baseball. I was a good, uh, good baseball player, enjoyed playing little league, stuff like that. And, um, you know, so probably would have given that a try and, and tried to make that pro. I was just going to ask you who in another sport do you really admire and follow? I would say, you know, to me, a lot of my, uh, the greats, um, love seeing what Tom Brady's done, love seeing what Peyton Manning's done, Drew Brees, guys like that, uh, Brandon Marshall, um, you know, um, um, some other guys that, that I've grown up watching. Rod Smith is another one. Um, you know, so it, it, a lot of good football players. I also enjoy, my brother's huge into baseball. I haven't really gotten much into baseball, but like A-Rod, um, you know, Bryce Harper, you know, Vegas alum there. Um, so guys like that are, are really cool to kind of see and, and see their success. How important is merchandise for your brand? You talk about doing a bunch of different things and you have a number of different companies, but how important is merchandise for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say it's not a huge deal. Um, I think we do it and supply it to our fans because they want it. Um, they want to wear your stuff. They want to go to the racetrack with your gear. And I, I love going to the racetrack and seeing everybody wearing, you know, the, the new eight hats and the new eight RCR gear and everybody kind of changing, changing teams with me, you know, it feels like they're changing teams too. Right. So, uh, it's really cool to see the swap over though. There's of course the kids and and others that are still wearing the M&M's gear, you know, and still being Kyle fans, which is great too. So I love that. Um, but, you know, it, it's not a, a moneymaker per se. You know, the, the retail space in our sport has sort of lost its way over time. The last probably 10 years, it just hasn't quite been what it once was. So, um, yeah, I, th I think we just do it for our fans and, and our hardcore fans. You also have a manufacturing business, right? Yeah, we do CNC work. So um, CNC is is basically machining um, a block of aluminum into a part or a piece or something like that. And so 
Uh, we service some military jobs. Um, you know, we service a lot of racing jobs. We do a lot of stuff for Kyle Busch Motorsports in-house. You know, we've got some cool trick pieces that we make that we're allowed to make that we do. And so to have your own machines in your own backyard at your shop is, is really nice to be able to, you know, uh, go do that. So that's, you know, some of the, the outside business that we do, that's, that's basically the, the money driving business, the money making business to kind of help pay for the people that help pay for the work that does the stuff for the racing. Cause the racing stuff is, is so small and far in between that it's not going to sustain those people's paychecks, you know? So we add in some of the ancillary stuff. Let's finish up with racing. Mark Martin raced into his fifties. How long can you go? Good question. Um, I would say in a perfect world, I've kind of dreamt this up a little bit in a perfect world. I would retire from cup racing when Brexton is 15 years old and I would go run a year of truck. I'd go run a full truck series season to see if I can win a truck series championship because that I would be the first one to have ever won in all three series of NASCAR, you know, the a championship, which I've won the most races across all three of those divisions than anybody combined. Um, so I would do that. And then when Brexton turns 16, him and I can split that truck where he can run the shorter track races and I can run the bigger track races. So for two years, because you have to be 18 to run the big tracks. So for two years, we would split it. And then when he's 18, he takes it over. And then when he runs it full time and takes it over and hopefully wins a championship, then he moves on and then I'm out, like I'm done. You know, that would, that would be it for me. So that would probably put me around, I guess, 49, 50 or, or, years yeah. old. Yeah, sure. By the Somewhere time you're Yep. That's a heck of a plan. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's the dream. So I got, I got to make the dream a reality. So we're working on that. I, I got to have that life after racing plan. I, I don't have that one set yet. And if, if my cup career is going to be over in the next, you know, six or seven years, boy, the time is ticking. <laughs> Does he get a truck at eight years old? Uh, like, like to drive did? around the streets? No, like the, the, the truck that your father bought you. Oh, 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 oh. Yes, he has one. Actually, I bought it back in 2004. I still have it. So it was the first vehicle that I ever made with real money that I bought with the real money that I made. So I still have that. It's a 2004 Chevy S10 pickup truck. And I dolled it up a little bit and made it look nice. And so when he turns uh, 16, that's going to be his first vehicle. Wow, amazing. Final thing, you sit today in second place, a new team, uh, a new chapter of Kyle 14.0. What will it mean if you win this year? Oh, man, that would be huge. Um, I think it would be really, really special for me, um, bringing a legacy back to, to RCR, then winning a championship again for the first time since 1994, which was last one with Dale Earnhardt. So um, that would be pretty iconic. And I, I, I would give everything to make that happen. You know, we were so close to winning the Daytona 500 this year. Um, uh, that's the only box that I have left to check in NASCAR that I haven't completed yet is winning the Daytona 500. So I led on lap 200. The race is 200 laps long, but it was lap 200 under caution. So the race got extended to finish under green. So unfortunately, I didn't uh, lead the last two re- uh, the last two laps after the restart. But um, yeah, I, I think it would be a huge moment, um, and I would that would be pretty awesome. Never lost a game, just ran out of time, right? Yeah, yeah. Never lost a championship, just ran out of races. <laughs> <laughs> We wish you the best of luck. Uh, you've been an absolute delight to have on the program. Thank you so much. We're watching you the whole way. If you win the title, you got to come back on the show. Awesome. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And uh, I'll, I'll vouch for that right here. We win, we'll be back. So that'll be really cool. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you, Jason. Be pulling for you, Kyle. Thank you so much. Right on. You got it. After this break, I'll continue our look back at 2023 on Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars & Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. 
Welcome back to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein. Now we'll continue our look back at some of the most influential interviews of 2023 on Cars and Culture. Last May, I sat down with IndyCar driver Joseph Newgarden. Now, a portion of my interview with him, which begins with me asking about his racing career and how it almost began in Formula One. I asked about his history and how he went in the IndyCar and how he went the IndyCar route instead of F1. Well, it's a, it's a difficult, long, long journey, difficult journey. You know, I, I grew up in yeah the outskirts of, of Nashville and, and Hendersonville, like you said. And then, you know, for me, karting was not really something that was easily accessible in the Nashville area. You know, it's, it's not something that was common around these parts. I grew up playing baseball and basketball, the normal, you know, suburban stuff that, that most kids do in America when they get into sports. Um, but it wasn't until I was 13 that I started racing parts with my dad. We had to go to Indiana to do that. You know, so he he's really the kingpin and trying to, you know, he, he's really the one that made everything happen, to be quite honest. I, I mean, without having an ally like like my father, just I don't think it'd be possible for a 13 year old to, to you know figure out how to get into this sport and to really survive. And he put a lot on the line. So, you know, I start karting. That, that works into car racing. And then I moved over to Europe, like you're just referencing. And I did two years in Europe. I had a great scholarship opportunity at the end of 2008. I went and ran the Formula Ford Festival. I won the Formula Ford Festival, was the first American to do it. Um, and that kind of gave me the opportunity to race in England for one year and then, then Europe um, the next. Um, but the big thing was funding. You know, it's it's unbelievable the amount of backing and funding that you'll need as a young aspiring driver if you want to you know, potentially make it to Formula One. And, you know, this is this is much more than trying to draw a second mortgage on your house and figure out how to, you know, bring in a couple hundred grand to, to lay on the line and go race junior cars. I mean, people do that. And, and, you know, we certainly were in a scenario like that on the way we leveraged everything, you know, to make my racing career happen. Um, but it, it's, it, that pales into compar- comparison of for what you truly need these days. I mean, if you look at, I'm not talking the 1980s and the 1990s, like 2000, up, you know, what is really needed funding wise for a young driver, whether you're an American or you're, whether you're living in Europe or where, whatever part of the world you come from, needs such a tremendous amount of money and backing that it's just almost impossible. Um, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And, and we didn't have any more money after, after 2010, we'd leveraged everything and I pretty much thought my racing career was over. I did two years over in Europe. And, and so I had to move back to America at the end of 2010. And I thought I was probably going to go to university or something and try and get a degree or, you know, figure out how to get into some other facet of life. And I had this great opportunity to run Indie Lights and, um, you know, pretty much had, you know, a, a ride given to me. And, and I got in that and won the championship. And that's what got me an opportunity to get an Indie truck contract after that. So that's how my path really changed from, you know, trying to work up the ladder in Europe um, and just running out of running out of steam and having to come back to America and all working out in a different way. It's a total dream though, isn't it? I mean, it, it, you know, Formula One is, is indeed the sort of the brass ring. Um, and you, you did uh, spend a lot of time as a, as a child sort of fascinated by all of it, right? Where would, I would imagine the Indy 500 would have also been on your to-do list. <laughs> oh, no doubt. You know, I mean, w- Formula One has done a tremendous job at, you know, marketing itself as the pinnacle. And it, and it and in some ways, it absolutely is. If we're talking the pinnacle of car technology and engineering, that is what Formula One represents. You know, there's, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of people on a team with unbelievable budgets, you know, half a billion dollars on some of these groups that are building, you know, the most impressive cars on the planet. Um but is it the most impressive race racing product on the planet? You know, now having been a part of it for so long and, and growing up, I, I know that's not, I'm, I'm positive on that. I'm, you know, having firsthand knowledge of it, but yeah, I grew up, I loved formula one. I loved IndyCar. I loved NASCAR. I really, I watched everything. It wasn't everything. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't going to be, it has to be this or nothing else. It was never that way. I, I for sure was captivated by formula one and, and, and a lot of what I was just saying, because they've done a tremendous job at marketing, you know, the pinnacle of motorsports. And that's really what you looked at when you were a kid. I, I, a lot of kids still do up to this point. It's getting tougher. You know, I think kids are starting to look at different forms of motorsports much more often now because the journey to Formula One and the, the ability to get there has become smaller and smaller and smaller. 
And now it's almost near impossible. You know, you, you have to come from near royalty nowadays if you want to try and even make a, a, an attempt or a journey to Formula One. You know, that's kind of the odds that are stacked against you. It's and still also, extremely difficult to get to IndyCar, but it's, it's not quite that, you know, statistically difficult. And I'm guessing all of the attention that we just talked about toward that, um, uh, toward the entity, <laughs> toward the, toward the, um, uh, that end of the sport is going to make it even harder because you're going to have more and more individuals thinking that they can grow up being the next Max Verstappen. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I, you know, I think there's a shift in motorsports though, in a, in a positive way that, you know, when you see young junior racers and karting, it, you know, looking at Lamar or looking at sports car was never at the forefront of young drivers' minds. If you raced carts, you know, Formula One, it was Formula One was like number one. IndyCar was kind of second, um, you know, but very much, you know, not something that you were going to place first. And then sports cars would be like the last thing. You looked at sports cars as basically where you'd go to retire. If you had, if you were able to have a career, then that's that's where you go to retire after your great career. And it's completely flipped. You see all these amazingly talented people that, you know, are all Formula One quality that, that run sports cars from an early age now and, you know, run for manufacturers at Le Mans and, and that are trying to get into IndyCar and, you know, trying to try and work over into our world. Um, so I, I love that. I love that there's been a shift and, you know, Formula One will have to navigate their way. But, you know, they're, they have such a great thing going for them that I think, you know, that part of the sport is not really detracting from, you know, what makes, you know, them so great and interesting to people. Tim Sindrick, who's the president of Team Penske, said that a lot of people grow up wanting to be a Penske driver. You weren't necessarily one of them. You just wanted to be on a great team. What have you learned in your time on Team Penske, which and the uh, what is the phrase? The Penske perfect, the Penske perfection, the way that all of you operate in a Penske way. It's really been, you know, a tremendous honor to be a part of the team. It really has. It, Tim's right. You know, I, I've expressed this to Tim because a lot of people will, you know, come to this team and, and they'll they'll have that storyline that, you know, it was, a, it was a dream to drive for Team Penske. And that's true for a lot of people. I think, you know, you grew up and you, you idolize the greatest groups out there. Team Penske is absolutely one of them. Um, you know, if not, you know, it could be argued that they're, they're, they're the best team uh, in the history of motorsports as well. But they're certainly one of the best. There, there is no doubt about that. Um, and and for me, it was never. You know, I didn't grow up idolizing and dreaming about driving for Team Penske. I I never looked at myself that way. I I really just wanted a great opportunity to, you know, compete in racing and and to prove myself. That's that's all I cared about. I didn't know where that was going to be or what that would look like. I had no idea of that. And even when I finally broke into IndyCar and had a you know had a young rookie contract. At, Penske for me was, was not something I ever thought they would, you know, entertain. I, I just didn't think they looked at me as someone that would, you know, be a part of the group. So when I was given the opportunity, um, I really tried to, you know, grab a hold of it with both hands. And it has been just a tremendous honor to be a part of it. I've learned a lot, you know, I've grown a lot within the sport. I grew a lot before I got to Penske. And then certainly I've just grown even more, you know, exponentially uh, across my years that I've, I've been able to work here and and they do have, you know, a, a certain process. They have a way about going, you know, about their business. Um, one of the misconceptions I had coming into it, I used to, you know, when I was driving for five years in, in IndyCar before joining Team Penske, I always thought that they seemed very sheltered um, and certainly, you know, not hearted. You know, there's some teams that you're on, you just have a really great time when you go to the track. And I, I didn't think that that great fun attitude was really present at team Penske. And then when I joined the team and now I've been a part of it for a long time, I mean, it's going to be further from the truth. You know, I think what you notice is the intensity of the workmanship. You know, when, when you're at the track, everyone is very laser focused on their job and their commitment to the team and the organization. But when you're within it, it's, it's really a tremendous environment. I've had some of the most fun I've ever had in racing being a part of team Penske. And we have such a great, connectivity amongst the entire team. Not We're not siloed. I think that's one of the most impressive things you'll find at Team Penske. And it's, very, it's definitely very different than other teams in IndyCar, which I think some are trying to model now. But, you know, typically you'll get your, if it's a three-car team on Team Penske, the cars are not siloed in that the two-car, the three-car, and the 12 are their own operating styles. And that, you know, the mechanics that are on each car are only working on that car. That's not how it works. We actually, everyone works on everything. So it could be a mechanic from my car that is responsible 
for you know the, the, the brake caliber build for every single car. So he's going to touch the brake calibers on every single car before it heads to the racetrack. So each person has a vested interest, you know, in each car that really shows up to the race weekend for Team Penske. And so, you know, it's cheesy, but we say, you know, a win for 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 our Team Penske car is a win for all of us. And it's really true. You know, it's really just tough on the drivers at times because our main competition is 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 our teammates, and obviously we want to be the best. But everybody has a vested interest in the operation and and us succeeding together. So I think that is a that's a key trait within the team that is, that has helped propel it to so many, you know, wins that it's had. Joseph, does it work also because they just get the basics, right? A hundred percent. It's funny because you can, you can go so deep within motorsports on, on trying to be clever and, you know, trying to outsmart and outwit people. And 90% of the time, if you just get the basics, right, that's enough. That is enough to do the job. And you'd be shocked how many times people get the basics wrong. You know, they don't, they don't focus on pit stops. Pit stops are so critical to race wins. I mean, if you just have solid pit stops all day, no mistakes, good times, you know, you can, you can, you can change your hit rate by 50%, I guarantee you. So, yeah, getting the basics right, making sure the car is going out with the right settings, that it's not going to break, you know, making sure that we're, we're making high percentage decisions with strategy when, it, when it's you know, changing within a race, all of those things, they just add up, you know, to, to, a, to a higher hit rate. And I think you, you get that with Team Penske because they do get the basics right. You know, we focus on that first before we try and get too clever. You won the championship with them in your first year. You've recorded 26 wins in IndyCar, 48 top threes, but no Indy 500 title yet. Rogers won a few of those. What does he tell you about winning the Indy 500? And what is it about this race? Well, you, you can see that the foundation is built off the Indianapolis 500. You know, if you're if you meet Roger Penske and you learn about the the Penske Corporation, the entire the entire group, really that brand and that entire company is built around the Indy 500. Certainly for Roger, you know, his commitment to the sport, his you know, his passion for it was was all manifested through the Indy 500. That's what he he grew up watching. It is, you know, it's certainly the greatest race that we have in the United States and, and can be argued that it's the greatest race that we have in the world. It's, it's still the highest attended single day sporting event. There's 350 plus thousand people there that are, that are on race day. You know, what it means, the heritage, the history, it's over 100 years old. I think this is going to be our 107th running. I mean, it, it really is an, an outstanding event. And so for, for Roger, you know, we always put the Indy 500 first and you can tell how much it means not only to him, but the entire team. And, you know, when you when you kind of set your priorities for the year, that's always going to be first followed by the championship. And it's, it's those two goals um, for us. The last couple of years, it's been difficult. We've we've not quite had the speed that we've typically had or what's been expected. And so we're been working on actively rectifying that. And I'm, I'm quite excited about our opportunity this year in 2023. But yeah, there's just a lot that you could dive into just specifically at that race, but it really is a part of the fabric and the DNA of, of the Penske brand. You've said with Indy, you've got to show up on that day and be really good. But I'm sure that means really good from every aspect that is in some ways probably incalculable. So how are you going to be really good this year? Yeah, it's tough. You know, timing timing is makes it makes it hard at the Indy 500. You have more time to do whatever than any other race. You know, it used to be, it's called the month of May, right? You, you would show up as the month of May. You're pretty much there the entire month. That's, that's what it used to be. And, and, you know, back in the day. And so you'd have, you know, nearly 30 days at Indianapolis and you know, every single day you could be practicing and, and trying to refine your race car, make it faster, get it prepared it's been condensed, but it's still a lot of time. You know, you're, you're practicing essentially for an entire week now, which leads into qualifying weekend. And it's a two day qualifying process. Then you have more practice afterwards for a couple more days, the following week, then you get to drive in the Indy 500. It's not a typical schedule that we we're used to seeing. We're used to a condensed three day process with practice qualifying and, and racing over a three day span. So because there's so much time available, it's, Yes, you can get a lot right because you can go through so much, but you can also get yourself turned around pretty easily. So I think timing and cadence is, is really critical at Indy. And that's why when you talk about Indianapolis, it's really only one day that matters. Yes, you have to qualify and you have to make the show. Yes, 
you have to utilize the practice time. But the, the only day that matters is race day. That's the only day you got to show up and you got to be perfect on that day. And, and everything has to go right. You have to have great pit stops all day. You can't misstep on strategy. You know, I've got to do a great job inside the car. And we've got to read the conditions. You know, India is all about conditions as far as track temp, um, you know, wind, wind direction, et cetera. That's, that's constantly moving our setup and, and what we're looking for to optimize a specific day. And on race day is the day you really got to get it right. And so because there's only one chance every year, you know, this, this grand spectacular event, there's so much pressure to it. And, you know, I think that's what makes it so difficult and why, you know, everybody shows up and, and why it means so much when you get it right. You still get butterflies. Oh yeah. Oh, I don't know how you couldn't, I, you know, if you, if you don't, I think something's gotta be wrong or you're lying. There's just <laughs> no way you couldn't. Well, it's the grandeur of it all, right, Joseph? It's it's everything that you said. It's the attendance. It's the buildup. It's the history. It's, you know, there, there was this famous photo of Roger with all of his trophies kind of fanned out, you know, in front of him. Um, 16 times, I believe, with Roger. I think it's 18. 18 times. Higher, yeah. 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 Incredible. You're a magazine publisher now. Tell me about podium life. Let's Let's change gears, Joseph. You and I, just a couple of, you know, publishers sitting around here. Now, I used to be one. You are one. Well, What's I told you to be in podium life. I told you I was trying to expand, you know, and, and figure out all the facets <laughs> of the sport. Um, no, it was a great opportunity. Yeah, podium life. I really love the I love the mission. I love the incentive behind it. It, it You know, it's it's created by other you know car aficionados, people that love not only motorsports, but car culture. And, you know, it's it was really manifested to try and create. Uh, a common space where you could you could pull together all the relevant and, and interesting things that are cars and car culture and motorsports. Um, you know whether that's you know interesting posters or art or you know pieces or uh, or memorabilia or maybe it's a new podcast or you know maybe it's this new content series, this new book. You know there's there's so many great things that motorsports and car fans are are looking for constantly, and this is really a place to bring it all together, you know, and to, and to keep people updated on, on, on what you should be looking out for. So I loved the idea. I loved the brand of it. It just, you know, for me, it's like, you want to live that podium life. And I, it really just rang true to me. I was like, I, I think I kind of already lived the podium life. And I, I know if I wasn't living the podium life, then I, I would want to be doing that. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, I totally, I, you know, I sympathize with, with every other car head out there that, you know, that wants to be doing this. And I feel so lucky to be a part of it. Um, and so that's what podium life really is. It's, it's, you know, it, it is, a, it's kind of an online magazine, if you will. And it's in a different format than what you would traditionally get 30 years ago. Um, but it's in that same spirit and it's updated and, you know, trying to keep people abreast on, on what's great and what's interesting in car culture and motorsports. So you were a brand ambassador uh, for uh, Forza Motorsport. Forza Motorsport Eight is coming out this year. Do you have your copy already? Uh, I don't. I don't. I you know I'm excited to see the new launch, um, but I'm with everybody else. I'm waiting too. <laughs> Anybody tease you about playing racing games during your downtime? I mean, wouldn't you want to break from racing and turn off that part of your brain? <laughs> I, I, I more so do now, you know, absolutely. Because, you know, we used to do these, we used to do these like meetups on, on uh, YouTube where we would, we would try and stream, you know, uh, a sim race and basically invite any, you know, just say, all right, this is the time and place. We're going to send out a password. You know, if, if it's on, if it's on iRacing or if it's on Forza, whatever it is. Um, and, and we'd run these races with, with fans from all over the world. And they actually, they were pretty interesting and they did, they did well and they were a lot of fun most of the time. But yeah, nowadays I find myself wanting, you know, more of a recharge time outside of race weekends. And like I was saying, we still use simulation technology a lot to, to develop and to continue to practice, you know, outside of, you know, something like a Forza or an iRacing, we actually have purpose-built simulators, just like in Formula One, you know, where we work with our manufacturer, Chevrolet, who, who has a, an amazing facility now with, with multiple sims um, at, their, at their location where they'll be working on, you know, NASCAR models or an IndyCar model. And uh, we're there quite often, you know, developing our race cars and trying to prep for race weekends. So even if I wanted to get away from simulation, I, I really can't because it's still a part of my day job. Yeah, exactly. 
uh, GM's Mark Royce has been on this program. How cool is it to have a manufacturer who just every weekend he'll put something out onto Twitter or Instagram and, you know, congratulations to Team Penske. And God, we did it again at this track. I mean, to have the OEM representative so involved has got to be really special for you. Oh, definitely. And, and as you know, Mark, Mark is all in. You know, he is just a tremendous supporter. Um, I, I love work, working with, with Mark and having his support from, from GM and, and really everybody else. It's a, it's a big team. They've got a huge team on the, the Chevrolet side. That not, yeah, that not only, that not only builds our, our engines, which is, you know, significant to what we're doing at the racetrack, but they're very instrumental from an R&D standpoint, too, and on the way we go racing and, and how we maximize what we're doing at the track. But they are they are all in. You know, it, I get texts from everybody at GM after the fact if we do well, and, and they don't miss a beat. So it, it makes a difference, you know, having racers. And that's what I would say, you know, Mark's a racer, really everybody at GM, they are racers to the core. And that, those are the type of partners that you want to have. A few final things. You're, I, I mentioned at the opening, you're a really talented ping pong player. And in fact, uh, you've hosted an annual celebrity tournament during May that raises funds for the Serious Fun Children's Network. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it was a fun opportunity. You know, ping pong's always been, um, you know, it's always been around when I was growing up and I, I love playing ping pong and, and most racers actually do. You know, if you set up a table, it typically happens during the month of May. Someone will have a ping pong table and you'll just get little downtime. <laughs> yeah. You'll get a crowd of people that are, you know, we just got off the track for five hours testing and, and then everybody will make a crowd and we'll, we'll play, you know, ping pong games together. Um, so I thought it would be a, a fun charity event. I'm like, look, if we're going to do a charity event and this one benefited serious fun children's network and wags and walks out of, out of Nashville, two great charities that, that I really care about. I was like, we're going to do this. Why don't we make it something fun where, you know, people are going to commit time and, you know, try and be a part of it. They could just be something easy that everyone can enjoy. And, and ping pong made a lot of sense. So we started doing that, I think about five years ago now. Um, and it's been really great. You know, we, we get a ton of support from, from IndyCar drivers. I actually moved it recently to Nashville for the, in front of the Music City Grand Prix. And that, that was really great. Then we were able to get some Nashville contingent out. And yeah, it's, it, to me, it's, it's a fun and easy way to do it. You helped, speaking of that, you, you helped, uh, design, create that Nashville track that goes in and around the stadium, which is, you know, ultimately super cool from an aesthetic standpoint and obviously for the city itself. What did you learn in trying to put a track together? Well, I was really late. You know, I was, I was at the tail end of it. They, they had, they had done most of everything and they, they were still looking for input an input towards the end. And unfortunately a lot of it was just constrained by, you know, the, the, the streets and, and the layout of the city, we could only adjust so much from what was, you know, given a green light from, from the, the County. Um, and so we tried to make some adjustments. There was things when I first showed up, I said, you know, this is going to be a problem spot right here. And I think we need to, you know, we need to widen this section, et cetera. And you could only do so much, you know, you can only move, you only move sidewalks so much. You can't move buildings, et cetera. So, <laughs> Um, that's, that's always the challenge of street course racing. And I think it will evolve, you know, it's going to have to, because the Titan stadium now is going to be demolished. They're going to rebuild Titan stadium, which is what we use as an infrastructure for all the teams. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it takes shape, but I'm a big fan of the event. It really is, you know, it's a city that we need to be in. It's very well supported here in Nashville. Nashville just loves a party. They love an event. Uh, and so they go hand in hand together. And, and I think we can make the track even better for the future after this year. Um, but I love it. You know, it, it's, it's really become to me a staple of our calendar and one that we have to work to protect for, for many years. Well, and so special for you, obviously, as I mentioned, growing up in Hendersonville and what, one of the things I noticed you went to school with golden Tate, former NFL pro bowl wide receiver, as well as Josh Berry, NASCAR driver. Yeah. Isn't that crazy in two different times too. I grew up with, with Josh Berry, and didn't even really know Josh very well. He was in my middle school class in seventh grade. And I had no idea. He's got a really compelling story, actually. You know, he basically met Dale Jr. through iRacing online and then just, you know, asked him for a job and went and worked at a shop and was sweeping floors and basically got support to go, you know, racing um, short tracks and made it all the way up to you know, now the Cup Series. So he's just got an amazing story. And I can't believe I didn't know him better in seventh grade when we were right next to each other. <laughs> and then Golden Tate was in uh, was in high school, and obviously 
you know, Golden went on to, to have a tremendous career and, and really it was, it was visible in high school. You know, I wasn't there half the time and I only did two years at the physical high school I went to. Then I had to com- complete my high schooling um, online when I moved to England. But the years I was there, you know, Golden was just the star athlete of every sport, et cetera. So it was pretty easy to see, you know, where he was going to go. Um, and he was a big ping pong player. We had two tables <laughs> set up like outside of the lunchroom. And Golden was like always playing. So we got to play quite a bit um, during lunchtime. And, and so it's just funny to look back on that and say that, you know, we were there at the same, same time. Yeah. And you're a big music guy. It's not necessarily Nashville music uh, in the traditional Broadway sense, but uh, you like Coldplay from England. And Guy Berriman's been on this program. He's the art director of Road Rat Magazine. I don't know if you know Road Rat Magazine, but if you don't, we'll get you a subscription. But uh, Guy's also an enormous car guy. And uh, I'm sure the two of you would have a lot in common. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I didn't even know that. And I'm, I am a huge Coldplay fan. I've always loved Coldplay. Um, but I, I'm starting to love the, the Nashville scene, too, because it's so diverse now. You know, yeah, it, it, it used to be looked at as just a country music hotspot. And that's true. That is what you know the, the roots of Nashville are. But you got everything here now. I mean, it's really an entertainment town. And whether it's rock or, you know, um, any form of music, I mean, you, you really just find entertainers from from all over the world. So it's, it's great from that side. And, and I think you also find a ton of car people here, you know, people that love motorsports and you'd be surprised. Most people think, and I, I used to get this question a lot from people that aren't in Nashville. They, they, they used to ask me, if you grew up in Nashville, why didn't, why weren't you drawn to, to NASCAR? Why, why, why wouldn't you want to just, and I, you'd be surprised. There's so many motorsports fans in Nashville, fans like me, where they just like everything. And that's why I think that the Music City Grand Prix works really well here. People love IndyCar racing. It's, you know, they love NASCAR too, but they love all forms of motorsports, which to me are just, you know, those, those are car enthusiasts. Well, and we should say one more thing. You did appear on Nashville Squares on CMT. Short-lived. Very short. <laughs> I think we only did one season, but I was there. <laughs> Joseph, thank you so much for being on the program. Good luck in this month of May. Good luck at the Indianapolis 500 with Team Penske. We will be watching you with great interest and uh, not only with this, but with your publishing career and with your ping pong and everything else. You are a man of many interests. (laughs) I love it. Thanks very much, Jason. Thank you. That's our brief look back at some personalities this year on Carson Culture. Thanks for listening to the program. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook as well as on Instagram and X. I'm Jason Stein. Thanks for joining us in 2023. We'll see you down the road in 2024. You're listening to Sirius XM Business Radio. Channel 132. Tune in Mondays at 9 a.m. East to Business Radio's brand new news program, The Business Briefing. Janet Alvarez takes you inside the biggest business stories of the day from government officials like Labor Secretary Marty Walsh and the SBA Administrator Isabel Guzman, economic thought leaders Kevin O'Leary, Steve Forbes, Paul Krugman, and Anthony Scaramucci, and executives from across the Fortune 500. How the latest happenings in the business world will impact the economy, the markets, and your wallet. The Business Briefing, weekdays at 9 a.m. East on Business Radio.